para ti lo que viniera de ti. Welcome to the Inside the Journey podcast for December 14th, 2014. I'm Nelson DeWitt. And I'm John Younger. We are the team behind the upcoming documentary film, Identifying Nelson Buscando a Roberto. To learn more about the film and sign up for updates, head on over to inbarfilm.com. That's I-N-B-A-R film.com. Our guest today is Angelina Sadgras-Godoy, who is the director at the Center for Human Rights at the University of Washington. She also runs the Unfinished Sentences Project. If you're unfamiliar with their work, then check out the show notes. We have links to previous episodes where we discussed the project in greater detail. Now on to the interview with Angelina. Okay, our guest today is Angelina Godoy, who works with the Unfinished Sentences Project, and she's here to talk a little bit more about the the project and what goes on behind the scenes, especially because from the previous interview, it sounds like you brought a lot of the students into the project. Yeah, I think that may be true. I'm a professor yeah. here at the University of Washington, and a lot of the activities that Unfinished Sentences is undertaking are closely related to classroom instruction and other kinds of educational opportunities here at the university. So. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us today. And uh, we just wanted to start with a little bit of background. Uh, if you could enlighten us on how the whole Unfinished Sentences project got started, that would be, that'd be great because I, I think it's very interesting how these things get started. Sure. So uh, Unfinished Sentences is one initiative of the Center for Human Rights here at the University of Washington in Seattle. Um, I'm the director of the Center for Human Rights. Um, and so we run different programs. Our, our central mission is to promote greater engagement with human rights by involving our faculty and students in human rights efforts that are led by people on the front lines of human rights struggles. That means not us, but uh, human rights organizations, like in this case, Probuskida, who might in some ways be assisted by research that we can help undertake here. So our job is to our job at the Center for Human Rights is to forge partnerships between students and faculty at the University of Washington and frontlines human rights advocates where that can be mutually beneficial. So in the case of unfinished sentences, uh, we've been working, I guess I would say, for over two years now, uh, over three actually, on human rights issues in El Salvador, uh, not only with Probuskeda, but also with IDUCA and a couple other human rights groups that are involved in seeking justice and healing um, and truth in the wake of crimes against humanity committed in the context of the Salvadoran armed conflict. So that's the general overview, I guess I could say. Unfinished Sentences is just the name of our initiative in El Salvador, but as I said, our center has projects in other parts of the world as well. Now, your your background is in Latin American studies, correct? Uh, that's right. Well, I'm a sociologist by training. That's what my uh, PhD is in, but I've focused my research and work on Latin America and even more specifically on Central America. So I've been doing uh, human rights related research in mostly Guatemala and El Salvador now for, well, a long time now. Time flies. Uh, so it's been, I guess, almost about 20 years now. Oh, wow. I wondered how the uh, organization got its name. I mean, it, it makes sense to me, but I'm wondering what, what, how you came up with it. You mean the name Unfinished Sentences? Correct. 
Well, we had a lot of discussion about that. Actually, being the stodgy academic I am, I just wanted to call the effort the El Salvador Project of the Center for Human Rights. Um, <laughs> and my students oftentimes are those that educate me most. And this was one of those cases. And um, they told me over and over again, you know, we need to have a name that really uh, tells, if we're, if we're hoping to encourage people to get involved in what we're doing and to support what we're doing, we need to have a name that um, tells people more about why we're doing it and, and kind of convey more than just the El Salvador project and uh, we considered many different sorts of names and we eventually settled on the name Unfinished Sentences because we felt that it it summed up the ongoing need for justice, the ongoing need to finish, uh, to, to help the healing process. One of the questions we often got in the early days of starting this project and unfortunately actually still get a lot of people say, well, this happened so long ago. Why, you know, why should we care about something that happened a long time ago and in a faraway place? And we wanted to have a name that really emphasized the ongoing need for for justice, truth and healing in the wake of the war. In a place that's really not so far away. <laughs> Absolutely. And a place yeah. where there's, of course, you know, lots of historic ties between the United States and El Salvador. So there's lots of reasons why I think we ha we should be doing this work. But um, sometimes people aren't immediately aware of those things. The other thing we really liked about the name Unfinished Sentences is that in Spanish, the translation would be Oraciones Incompletas. And Oración is both a sentence, but it's also a prayer. It's also the word for a prayer. So it kind of had a deeper meaning, I think, in Spanish with that kind of play on words. That sort of prayers that are still open that are still uh, mm -hmm. waiting to be answered. Wow, that's that's a lot like the origin of Nelson's story. <laughs> His mother's name actually was Mila, so um, he had a blog called Anna's Miracle. Uh -huh. Her first name was Anna, so so it was yeah, a similar play on on that kind of name. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering how did you personally get involved with El Salvador and Guatemala and some of these very um, war-torn countries? Well, in my personal case, it's really a very personal reason, which is that my own family, my mother's family is from Colombia. And so while I grew up very privileged and not very much at all engaged in the ongoing issues of war in Colombia, traveling back and forth between the U.S. and Colombia, um, I did have a chance to to learn some of those issues. And unfortunately, my own family was touched by violence uh, in Colombia when I was in college. And so that kind of raised my uh, awareness, I guess I would say very abruptly about violence and the consequences it can have in families um, and made me start to be much more interested in human rights. But I didn't uh, immediately start working on them in the Colombian context. I was very close to home. And instead, that was the time when the Central American conflicts were winding to a close. Um, and I became involved with Amnesty International. And actually, Amnesty asked me if I could help them with work that they were doing at that time on Guatemala, which was then concluding its um, armed conflict. And so that's how I got involved, basically, you know, an opportunity to get involved at Amnesty with Guatemala issues. And then you kind of never look back, you get more and more involved. I first became involved in Guatemala, but then, you know, that led to uh, interest in El Salvador as well and other Central American countries. I'd kind of like to jump to the, the class you're going to teach next semester and, uh, and the letter writing campaign that you're working on for the State Department. Uh, I thought that those two initiatives were really fascinating. Okay. 
let me try to answer that, but perhaps in a backwards way, um, because to answer, I think, both of those questions, I need to explain a little bit about our partnership with ProBuskera first. As I mentioned before, the mission of our Center for Human Rights is to work in partnership with human rights organizations that, you know, I like to describe them as they're, they're the ones on the front lines of human rights struggles. They're the ones who are making the strategic decisions about where they want to go and what they need to do to get there. But oftentimes they identify research needs as something that can help them um, in their effort. And as we're a research university, that's our specialty. So we first became involved through the Unfinished Sentences Project in El Salvador, working particularly closely with IDUCA and some other groups. But we're lucky to begin conversations with ProBuskeda, I guess a couple of years back now, and just offer them some of the research services, if you will, or uh, that we've been doing in relation to other cases that some of these other human rights organizations have been involved in. And so the, there's a number of different ways that we've helped them out with research. One of those is, for example, research in U.S. government declassified documents, which I believe Mina, uh, one of our students, spoke to you all about uh, recently. Mm -hmm. And so we've been both analyzing already declassified documents and then soliciting the new declassification of documents as well. So we started talking to Probuska about that and about document requests that they might want to make. And another, and just sort of, you know, offering them or wanting to hear from them about any research needs they might help or have or any ways that we might be able to help them. And one of the needs that they articulated, well, they've articulated multiple needs. One would be help with specific cases that they're investigating. And so we are doing some research support there. A second would be uh, help in terms of a broader request for support in obtaining information that may be in the records of the U.S. government that would help them resolve some of these open cases that they have. And so one of those areas is, uh, you know, we know that many children, probably thousands of children, were uh, given in adoption to U.S. families and that the U.S government has records pertaining to those adoptions. Of course, that's very sensitive information and there's important uh, privacy laws that govern its use and, you know, legitimately so. At the same time, some of that information about the whereabouts of those children or the channels through which they travel to make their way to the United States could be of vital support to Provuska's efforts to investigate these cases. And so we've been trying to help them explore possibilities for accessing some of those records while still being in compliance with uh, governing privacy laws. So that's an ongoing conversation. And it's a conversation in which we've sought the support of some U.S. Congress people. As part of that, we have asked some uh, members of, for example, first the Washington State delegation, that's our delegation here, um, to make a request of the State Department to have that conversation with us about how, uh, you know, open a dialogue about how we could explore access to some of those records. And uh, so we've asked for the support of our congressional delegation, but also other members of Congress who may be interested in lending their support to this letter to the State Department. We're very eager to have support of as many Congress people as possible because we think it'll boost our chances of success in terms of actually opening this dialogue. Um, so that's, you know, one avenue that we've been working on. And then another area that ProBuskeda asked for our help with was generally spreading the word internationally about their work, both because there are, uh, you know, former adoptees who live in the United States or in Europe or in other countries who may still not have heard about ProBuskeda's work and may be interested in knowing about it. And then also because there's uh, families, you know, Salvadoran families who may have 
have lost or you know been separated from their biological relatives prior to leaving El Salvador and then maybe in the United States or Europe or other countries and, and also interested in connecting with Probusca in some way but still have not heard of it uh, the organization and so one of the things that we will be working on pretty intensively over the course of the next several months is um, some storytelling digital storytelling around Probusca's work that we hope to circulate in the United States and ideally also in Europe if we're able to um, have that much access because we want to spread the word fundamentally about about what they're doing and hope that people out there will be interested to learn more. Mm -hmm. Well, all of the work, I should be clear, that we do here at the University of Washington Center for Human Rights is done by students, students under my supervision, but it's really the energy and innovation and good ideas and commitment of students that, that drives the engine forward and this is no exception. So I am going to be teaching a particular class in which the students have been tasked with doing this digital storytelling around Probusca and as part of that I'll be taking a group of them to El Salvador in the months ahead. Just for a very short visit, unfortunately we can't spend as long a time as we would really like to do these stories justice, but a short visit will you know, be, be, be valuable, I'm sure. Well, I, sure. you know, I think you've done a, a fantastic job, all of you, in making the information accessible and presenting it in a way that it can spread. You know, it's something John and I have talked about, how great it was not the content of the document, but to be able to open up the yellow book and to just be able to download it and then look through the Excel uh, spreadsheet. And, and that makes it so much more accessible than just a, uh, um, what am I trying to say, a uh, PR release or something like that. It really brings it to life and you get to see the names and the faces and get a feeling for what this document actually did. So you know, uh, thank you for all of your work with uh, with that. I think it's really paid off. And one thing that I asked Philip and Mina was, what was what have you seen come out of those efforts? What has the response been, and what are some of the changes that you've seen as a response to all of the work that you've been putting out there? Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you so much for your kind words about our work. We, you know, we face a lot of limitations and there's much more we would love to do, but I am proud of what we have been able to do. And, and so I'm, I'm glad that you found it impactful and, and positive in your work. In terms of the results that we've seen specifically from the publication of the Yellow Book, I would say for me, it's been an overwhelmingly positive experience. Um, of course, from the beginning of the time, you know, as uh, Mina and Phil will have told you, we worked on the Yellow Book for a period of years, really doing the research and preparation. And we always hoped that the release, eventual release, would generate interest and impact. But I have to say personally, the level of interest that it generated was far beyond my expectations in a very positive way, just in terms of the number of people accessing our website, the number of people downloading the document, and, and then the number of people also contacting us. So we have been receiving dozens of emails from people in response to the Yellow Book publication. You know, some of them, people are just saying, thank you, this matters. Um, others saying, telling us stories about the, some of the people in the yellow book, you know, individual stories where people say, well, number, you know, A35 is my father and this is what happened to him. You know, people just wanting to share some of that information. And then uh, a third category of people uh, asking for information. And sometimes those for me are the most heart-wrenching of the cases because in the overwhelming majority of them, we don't have more information about that person, but I think it just shows how 
how insatiable that desire for information is from people who suffered the loss of loved ones during the war and are still looking for those folks. So some of them saying, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm looking for my brother. Uh, he's not in the yellow book, but I'm contacting you just in the hope that you might have some other information about him and then telling us a little bit about that person. Sadly, we haven't been able to really answer those requests with the information people were seeking. But overall, what I would say, the response that we got to the Yellow Book has convinced me just how important the work is, how uh, close to the surface it is for so many people, both in El Salvador and abroad, um, especially people in the Salvadoran diaspora communities close to the surface, meaning this isn't ancient history, this isn't something, you know, that everybody's moved on from and that uh, we're kind of digging up the past. Uh, these are present burning questions for people uh, today. And I feel like that publication really just began to kind of scratch the surface and it opened up a lot more discussion. At least we've been privy to a lot of discussion among Salvadoran human rights groups, um, in, you know, in addition to what I'm talking about, the private individuals that have been emailing us, then we've had a number of discussions with Salvadoran human rights organizations who have said that, you know, that really brought forward a lot of conversation about the past, a lot of discussion. And I think, and this is really just me saying I think, or it's speculation, but um, I do believe that once some of that information starts to come out, more will come. Uh, this history is unsettled. For a long time, it's been kind of cloaked in a mantle of of silence, but there's more that will come out. And I think this is the beginning of the process. I can't say we began it with the Yellow Book, but many Salvadoran human rights organizations have been working for a very long time to, to really uh, have this discussion about the past. And I think they're starting to achieve attraction that we haven't seen uh, in the past. So that's an exciting an exciting movement to be a part of. I, I think we're just a small part of it, but it's been a privilege to, to be a part of it in any way at all. You make me think of something that I've I've started to notice recently in that it sort of is, is part of human nature to find each other again when we're lost, to like that we will go to extraordinary lengths to reconnect with uh, loved ones or people from our family who are missing. And I and I think that uh, you really speak to that and that the search continues. When I first started working with Nelson, it, it was one of the things that was just really hard to understand about his story and then to, to understand there's a whole world of stories behind that that you know, I hadn't been as aware of, that this war ended in 92. It began in 1980, and, and a, lot of, a lot of the worst abuses were close, closer to 1980, and yet it's still so present in people's lives and... and how can that be? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it just something that I think most Americans can't can't comprehend. And uh, you you speak very well to it, yeah, in this interview. Oh, well, thank you. I think it, to my mind, it's kind of a question of privilege, right? If you haven't had the privilege of, or if you have had the privilege of not suffering that kind of loss in your own experience, then I think you can say, oh, this is a long time ago. Why talk about it now? Why that? You know, you can assume that people are able to move on. But every single time and without exception, and that I have talked to you know, victims of the armed conflict in El Salvador, every single time, nobody talks about this sort of moving on or like going back to the past after this long period of not thinking about it or digging up the past. It's not that, it's the present that's with them every day. So you know, sometimes you do get people who are opponents to these kind of human rights inquiries saying, oh, you're going to reopen old wounds. But to me, that's very telling because that 
phrase suggests that the wound has closed, and that's certainly not the perception of anybody I have spoken to in the victim's community. I mean, these are open wounds, even after so much time. Absolutely. And and not only that, a lot of them could be closed and resolved. I mean, or, or I, don't know if, uh, I don't know if you ever get complete closure. I mean, I think, but there are answers to a lot of the questions these people have, and, and sometimes the people they're missing are alive, and it, that's, that's really astounding. I think one of the things that to me was very um, powerful also about the response that we got to the Yellow Book was, you know, receiving these communications from people in the victims community or family members of victims, you know, not many of those were, you know, heavily emotional communications about what the the feelings that were stirred up for them by the Yellow Book, but not one person asked for vengeance, not one person talked about violence. You know, sometimes the people who are opponents of human rights think, oh, if you start stirring this up, we're going to end up in conflict again, or this, it's just people, you know, still trying to fight out the battles of the war. And that's really not my, been my experience at all. What people are asking for is truth about the past, a chance to con- reconnect as human beings with loved ones. You know, it's it's not this um, thing that people fear of, you know, reinitiating old hatreds or something like that. It's it's really about the human need to connect, the human need to know, much more basic things than that. Yeah, in the back of my mind, when you're speaking about this, one thing I'll, I'll never forget is the interview we did with Siapa Serrano, who's um family's court case led to the national commemoration of the day of disappeared children and it's and you know their family has had a a decade-long struggle since the early 80s to try and find out what happened to her two younger sisters who disappeared when they were three and seven and it interviewing her it was so immediate um she spoke to us for about 45 minutes and and nelson conducted a great interview and, and it it just felt like she was telling us something about something that happened yesterday, and and I don't speak Spanish particularly well, but I I understood her. <laughs> um, it it you know it just has always stuck with me, and and that's the context that I think of these other people you're mentioning that I don't know their stories, but yeah. We've talked about many of these themes before that uh, um, you know mm-hmm. forced disappearances is sort of an ongoing punishment, if you will, like, and John, I think what you were saying is it's not about, you'll never have closure, but I think the worst part is not knowing. And when, as soon as you know, whether it's good or bad, then you can start to process and move on. But until that point, it is an open wound as, um, as we were talking about. Well, I, to me, it was really interesting when we, when you interviewed Philip and Mina about your reaction to the yellow book, and, and also when we were talking about it, in your life, your your mother's photograph was posted in a similar way. You know, to me, it's interesting historically and, and empowering that that's out there, but and you helped me like, oh, don't, it, immediately I felt, don't get carried away. Like, this hurts, you know? I mean, it looks a little like an assassination program in Vietnam or something. And I just, I wondered if you could share for a minute just what what it was like to experience seeing the yellow book and reading it and how it affected you. When we first discussed it, I said, this is sort of the missing link. It's it sort of, so when I was reunited with my family, I found out that my mother's picture had been put in the newspaper. And that was one of the reasons that she had to leave El Salvador. And this document kind of fills in that, that gap. And you can see this is the way that they might have targeted her or other people like her. 
And so I think in that respect, it helped me see that it was, it was systematic in a way that it wasn't just, Oh, we, we have this person who we think is a criminal or whatever. It was really this, we are targeting people who we are labeling as the enemy of the state. We did an interview with, with my uncle and he was, uh, kidnapped and tortured as well. And you wonder like, was, you know, was he on one of these lists? Is that why they, they went after him? So it, it makes it, 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 it makes it real. And it fills in that, that, um, that gap and just says, here's an example of what, how it might've happened. Right. So I think that that's what it, uh, what the yellow book meant to me. Angelina, my, my final question is really how can we help with your work? Well, I think there's lots of ways, um, many ways, actually. And, and I should start out by saying that whether you know it or not, you've already helped us quite a bit, which is, for example, uh, the class that I will be teaching where we're going to be doing this work uh, with Probuskela, um, one of the things I have on their assignment list is listening to some of these podcasts and the work that you all have done to, to help. I, I think it's very, very powerful work to help uh, especially for like the task that I have with, you know, predominantly American students in my classroom and helping them kind of relate to this history that can on a first blush seem something very far away and happened before they were born and all of those kinds of things. So, so the work that you're already doing, I think is very powerful and, and we've certainly drawn it or I certainly drawn it in my teaching already. In terms of what other people can do, there's a number of things. So we have, for example, on the Unfinished Sentences website, there's a take action section and it has a big across a plus sign. And we feature different actions depending on what actions you know we're highlighting in the given case at a given time. But people can always go there and click on that and it'll give you a chance to take action to send a letter in support of human rights in El Salvador. And I mentioned that because in particular we have some publications, research publications that are going to be coming out in the weeks and months ahead where it really does help the case if uh, people upon reading and learning about these particular issues relating to human rights in El Salvador do something to let their voice be heard. And I know from you know, my own work in human rights, sometimes you feel like just a tiny person and you learn about these really big structures of injustice and you think, what could I ever do? But it actually does make a very powerful difference when people join their voice to thousands of others saying, oh my God, you know, I just learned about this case. It's outrageous that there has not been an investigation or there's been no justice or these people are still waiting for truth. And, you know, lesson one, the you know first day of human rights class is uh, there's an immense power in the global movement when we all get on the same page. And so one thing that people can do is join us in taking those kinds of actions that we publish regularly on our website. Um, and another thing, I guess, maybe coming back more specifically to the two of you and your work with this podcast and this general effort, I would love it if I could talk to you more sometime or maybe have some of my students talk to you more. I think that the particular experience and insights that you've gained through this work and through your own personal experience are things that we can learn a lot from and that can help us be more effective and more sensitive and more uh, just better in doing what we do. So I would love it if um, you'd be willing to share some of your insights, perhaps, for example, with the group that will be going to El Salvador next year, or, you know, just in a few months ahead. So those are some specific things. And I, I'm really inspired that you, you know, by this program and, and that it exists. And, and I hope other students across the country see it and want, want to do something similar. Um, and so thank you. And um, also, 
first thing I'd recommend if your students get a chance is just to listen to a lot, several of Nelson's peers, other Salvadoran adoptees at various stages of searching or re, re, being reunited have been on here and have been very brave to share their stories. And so in addition to whatever we have to say, I'd highly recommend if your students get a chance to listen to those because every one of their perspectives is really, A, it took a lot of courage for them to come forward and, and B, I learn every time I talk to any one of them, so. Yeah, yeah I agree. And, and for those of you listening at home, we actually have a few playlists that uh, we'll, we'll post with the show notes, but you know, we've aggregated some of the, the podcasts because uh, we've done quite a few and they can be a little overwhelming to, to sort through. So <laughs> we've made it a little bit easier. There's a few too many of John, not too many, but there's a few of John and Nelson talking. <laughs> well, Angelina, I just wanted to thank you so much uh, for, for coming on and uh, talking about the, the program with us. And uh, of course, we will uh, be happy to help any way that we can, both with promoting your work and helping you um, maybe have a better understanding of El Salvador. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.